Amen. Go ahead and take a seat. If you thought you were standing for a while, then just wait to see how long you'll be sitting. Ask that first service. They were still here when you got here. We got a lot to cover. Today we are looking at the final words of 1 Thessalonians. We started this book about two months ago, and we've been working through it. It's been a great study, and today we have the final section for us. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. While you're turning there, let me remind us that this Friday we have our Good Friday service at 6 p.m., and then we have Easter. So most of our stuff uh, being shared with the community and the handouts and everything are for Easter morning. For Good Friday, for that service, I encourage you to join us if you are able. We will take time to remember the work of Christ. And the, the team has a fantastic um, uh, service prepared for us to remember and reflect and, and really walk ourselves through the atonement that was given to us by Christ's work on the cross. So I, I encourage you to join us for that if you're able to. That'll be Friday at 6 p.m. <clears throat> okay, so for us, in 1 Thessalonians chapter five. Okay, so if you recall, starting in chapter one, we were, uh, Paul's encouraging them, and by this section, it's kind of like the final set of instructions. Like a parent dropping their kid off for college, they get them settled, they got them all ready to go, and all of a sudden they're like, all right, and don't, like, here's this, here's that, don't forget this, don't forget that. Here, remember, you can call here, whatever it is. Like, you just kind of like run through the whole thing again. And there's a little bit of that in, in that all these are just statements and exhortations and advice just rattle off. So we're going to work through this. And as we do, I wanna remind you that this letter would have been read to the church of Thessalonica. They got this letter from Paul and they'd be reading it. They probably worked through the entire letter when they gathered on this, the first Sunday they got it. And uh, it, you know, it would take an maybe hours because he'd probably taken breaks, maybe having a meal, maybe pausing to talk about because he references certain moments or stories or people, maybe even pausing in those moments to allow the person to, to share for them to remember and reminisce a little bit. And so at this point, they're getting near the end. And I can imagine whoever is like the elder of, of this church, they're, they're probably saying, all right, like, we're gonna take a break and then we have the final one. So they take a little 10 minute break, you know, do whatever they gotta do. They come back together and say, these are the final instructions from Paul. Let's read this together. And then they work through it. So you can imagine just a, a heightened sense of what, what, are, what are the last things that he's reminding us that he wishes he could be here to tell some person, but we have this in the letter. So that's what we have for us. If he, uh, Thessalonians, so 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 uh, to 28 to finish it out. So starting in verse 12, let's read this and then we will focus in on one section. It says this, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, 
but test everything, hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. I love that verse, by the way. It's double underlined in my Bible. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers of the holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Okay, these are Paul's final instructions to the church. And it is a beautiful finale to a letter that has been an encouragement. It has uh, been a celebration of God's work in their life. There has been exhortations, and now we have this final one. Among this entire last section, this speech, there is one statement that stands out among the rest that God has stirred within me, burdened my heart, Uh, weeks ago as I came across this. And it's like, really? I mean, there's so many, so many statements here. There is one that we must focus on, and it is the five words in verse 19. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. Some of your translations say, do not extinguish the Spirit. One translation says, do not put out the Spirit's fire. You know, we know the function of a fire extinguisher. Has anyone had to use one of these before? I have. Yes, in a terrifying situation, which I preached about a while back. Well, these things, these fire extinguishers, they are designed with the purpose to extinguish or to smother a flame so it has no other ability to catch other stuff on fire. Remove it all. And it does a pretty good job with it. Friends, we have the capacity in our free will to extinguish the flame of the Holy Spirit at work within us to quench the Holy Spirit's fire. And scripture exhorts us not to do that, not to quench the flame of the Spirit. And this encompasses all his different roles. So when you think about, well, what does the Holy Spirit do? Remember, he's not just a force. He's not just like this imaginary thing. He's not just, um, I don't know, a lot of people kind of like forget him. They remember the Father and the Son, and they're like, ah, there's another. And so what does he do? Well, in scripture, we read, All these different things. So listen, like, do not quench. Let me just walk through some of his characteristics and his roles. Do not quench the power of the Spirit in your life. Do not quench the sanctification of the Spirit. Do not quench the illumination of Scripture by the Spirit. Do not quench the filling of the Spirit. Do not quench the comfort of the Spirit. Do not quench the testimony of the Spirit to who Christ is. And do not quench the conviction of the Holy Spirit. As the pastor of this church, I have that unique privilege of, of watching it, it be birthed by God and grow. And being here at the beginning, I feel like a parent who's watched a child grow, knowing my child better than even my kids know themselves. And there's a handful of burdening unhealthy marks in our church. And one of those is a propensity to quench the Holy Spirit. Now that's in context of this church is awesome. I love this church. I'd be at this church even if I wasn't the pastor. This church is so healthy and I'm so here for it. It's great. I'm really thankful for God's work. But we have... um, We have 
violated the purity and the, and the beauty of holy communion with the Holy Spirit who indwells us and lives within us, those of us, those of us who are followers of Christ, we have violated that on par with like cheating with your spouse. My prayer for us as we work through this is that God would bring to mind, either through the exact topics we're gonna work through or even something else we don't mention, to stir within you a recognition of in what manner or, or how you have quenched the spirit in your life. At being at full work, full power, full capacity. One way to even draw a contrast here or, or like a, a word picture, I think about my phone. So this phone, it's an iPhone 8 and it's uh, like four years old or so. Phone is cracked screen. Stuff doesn't run very smoothly. Apps take forever to download and everything. And uh, the, the, the biggest thing is the battery is like, super critical, like it doesn't, it doesn't work well. And when you go to like battery health diagnosis, it'll say like, please see a technician immediately, you know? Basically your phone is on the cusp of dying at any point. And this thing does, it doesn't really hold a good charge. It runs at a, a limited capacity. And friends, when it comes to the Holy Spirit at work, full, fully at work in our lives, we're running at a, at a percentage of what it could be. For some of us, that's 5%. For others, 50. Others even like 95%, but hey, you know what? You still got that section of your life that you still haven't fully surrendered and you're quenching the spirit on a regular basis and you either know it or, you, or you've just been blind to it and that's, you know, use scripture as a, as like a magnifying glass to show that. Wherever it is, I urge us and me just to walk through this and find ourselves confessing where we have been quenching the spirit. Walking even through this in preparation, I worked through nearly like half a box of tissues just in my own personal conviction of how egregious it is to take that which is, I should say he who has implanted and, and, and dwelling in me and empowering me and for me to just take a fire extinguisher to his work in my life. And so let us discuss quenching the spirit by answering these two questions. Why do we quench the spirit and how do we quench the spirit? So the first question, why do we do this, right? I, I, there's several different reasons and different motives one of the leading ones I have seen in our church family is this. We'd rather pursue an ambition of lesser eternal significance than surrender to the Holy Spirit's absolute control and authority in our lives. I'm gonna reread this. It's one of those points you normally have on the screen, but I don't usually do that. We'd rather pursue an ambition of lesser eternal significance than surrender to the Holy Spirit's absolute control and authority in our lives. I propose to you that we all have a fire in our bones about something. And I know this because I know you and I know people. And so if you think about it, like I've talked to some of you, you're a dude and you're like, I fall in love with this girl and she lives across the country. I'll jump in a car right now and I'll just drive all night. I'll just be on Red Bull and I'll get there and I'll be there in two days. And you're like, well, slow down. You know, you just, just met him online. Might not even be a real person. You know, and so you, you know, you're like, okay, you are really passionate about this. 
we see that in that person. Uh, several of you, uh, you mothers of, of you know, all, all children, but like I'm just thinking of all the, all the moms. Y'all convey that whole mother bear concept really well. I don't know if that's a Green County thing or what, but there's this sense of a ferocious protection and development of your children. You don't even have to try. It just is there. It's a burning passion. Nothing will stop you from that. I see this in those who are entrepreneurs. They have a dream or a passion. They tell you about it, and you might even be thinking, that's kind of crazy, or that's not gonna work. But to them, the word impossible doesn't even exist. They are full focus. They got this thing in their bones. They cannot shake it, and nothing's gonna stop them. We see this in athletes, those who are determined to get the gold. Yeah, they're gonna have fun. Yeah, they're gonna learn character and teamwork. But you know, at the end of the day, they want the gold medal. We see this yesterday in like the NCAA stuff, just this passion. Nothing is gonna stop them from going all the way to the end. On and on and on in all these other areas of our lives, we have a fire in our bones. But what about spiritually? Are we consumed by the Holy Spirit who has complete control of our life, not just an add-on to our spiritual life, not just you know, our helper whenever we're like in the struggle, but on a daily, momentary basis, a complete yielding to his power, to his work, to his uh, admonishment, to his strength and encouragement. Part of God's plan for us as followers of Christ is giving us that advocate, that helper, that best friend living in us and working through us. And so often we're just like, that's nice. I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do. And in those moments, we quench the spirit. Are we recklessly passionate about a lesser thing, something of lesser value than the overpowering working of the Holy Spirit in our life? Perhaps that is true for us because we have never actually tasted the sweetness and the joy And a, a satisfaction of communion with the Spirit in a way that nothing else even matches. It's like once you, once you taste it, you never forget it. And once you have it, it burns within you in a way that you just can't, you just can't easily let go of. I think that several in our church family, we may be information, informationally aware of who the Holy Spirit is. Uh, we may be experientially aware of his empowerment. You know, if you're using your spiritual gifts and you're like, man, this is something I'm just not usually doing, but he's working in me, this is amazing. And you know, you're telling me ah, how he's worked in your life. Maybe you can exegetically explain the various functions of the Spirit from, uh, in a Christian's life, but few of us have actually tasted the captivating presence of the Spirit so clear, so overwhelming that, in fact, some of the language used, particularly in the book of Acts and a couple other places, it just is, is the description of a baptism. It's an overpowering. It's like being dunked in the water. In our other areas of life, we know what it's like to experience a fire and a passion and a zeal that nothing can stop. We're going to do it. It doesn't matter what other people say. We're going to get it done. But does that fire in our bones describe our faith? I'd submit to you that for several of us, no, I'm gonna, 
Um, I, I keep saying that even in the first service, for all of us. There is no exceptions in this sermon, including me. All of us have allowed there to be regular, we have normalized quenching the Holy Spirit in our life. And it's unacceptable and it is, it's hindering us so much. We, we just live in it so much. Like, like those of, uh, if you're in chronic pain or something, you just like, you just like live with it. You know, you, you kind of learn to live with it. Well, it, it, we're like that. We just live with it and it doesn't have to be. As you think about this idea of the Holy Spirit and even, even the concept of fire, listen to some of these verses in scripture that correlate all this together. So it's, it's, it, I, th- I find these uh, helpful, not necessarily as a, to draw a point from, but it's kind of fills out the message a little better. Matthew 3.11, this is John the Baptist. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 2 Timothy 1.6 says, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame. Right, that language of fire. Fan it into flame, the gift of God, which is in you, through the laying on of my hands. That's from Paul to Timothy. And then Acts 2, the day of Pentecost. It says this, on that day, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm. Like last night, it was roaring, at least where we live. And, it, and in this case, it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. Jesus' first followers all described the work of the Holy Spirit with fire terminology. That's just so interesting. Well, that is not limited to them. Even in other parts of scripture, listen to this. Exodus 3, 2, when Moses is looking at the burning bush, it says, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, but it wasn't consumed. Second Chronicles 7.1 says, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, is when he's dedicating the temple, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. That must have been quite a sight. It's, I have another verse, but you know, isn't it wild that they experienced this and then um, like his kids and the future generations just totally like jump ship on worshiping God. I mean, Solomon himself did. Like they literally saw this happen and they're like, yeah, let's go chase after idols. Anyway, Hebrews 12, 29, my last verse for us regarding this is, is this, our God is a consuming fire. And so friends, let me ask you, has God consumed you? Is this how you would describe your relationship with God? He has consumed me. It is so, it is so vibrant, it is so lively, it is so real. There is no other way to describe this than the Holy Spirit is alive within me. I am yielded to his work and it is, it is, it is radically different than whatever my previous like walk with God or before I knew Christ, whatever that was, the Spirit has a hold on me, and, 
And it is so, so not just satisfying, worshipful. I want no other alternative. Again, we have grown okay with, content with a life that quenches the spirit. So to answer that first question, why do we quench the spirit? Well, we'd rather pursue a love of lesser eternal significance, even good things, like chasing after a spouse and protecting your children and fulfilling the dreams that God's planted on your heart. Those are good things. Let me just say real clearly, it's, none of those things are greater than a holy pursuit and surrender to the Spirit's absolute control and authority in our lives. So the second question is, how do we quench the Holy Spirit? So the first one is why, you know, why does this happen? Secondly, well, what are, what are some of the reasons this happens? Now, usually when people talk about this, because this is kind of a common sermon topic, I, I think, uh, it, usually, and there's so many things. So sometimes it's, it's important to talk about how we can allow fear instead of faith to, to have a stronghold in our life, that would quench the spirit. Um, giving into addictions and all sorts of temptations, that would quench the spirit. Uh, but because we're in First Thessalonians and because we're at the end here where there's all these different statements, I wanna use this book to lead us into seven different examples of this. Two of them are back in chapter one and then the other five are here in the last part of chapter five. And so these are different examples of how we quench the spirit. My prayer is that one of them would really stand out to you for you to take to the Lord. I mean, I was just praying through it. There's dozens of examples, but these are the ones that stand out to me for our church family as I was praying through it. So I, uh, you know, I suspect that at least one of them, if not all of them, may really hit you in a certain way. But God may even use this to remind you of something else. And if he does, you know, pay attention to that. L listen to that. So the first example of, of why we quench this, or how it is that we quench the spirit, is when we deny the gospel with unbelief. Okay, so this is specifically to those who are not Christians yet. And you're an unbeliever and you hear the gospel and when you do, you are at an eternal crossroads of either belief or denial. And when you deny the truth of God, the truth of Jesus Christ specifically and his work on the cross, you quench the Holy Spirit from, from his role in your conversion. So back at, well, I'll support this with verses here. So chapter one, verse five, it mentions this statement. It says, our gospel, or when we brought you the good news, it was not only with words, but also with power. For the Holy Spirit gave you assurance that what we said was true. So in this case, they heard it and they believed. And when that happens, Ephesians 1 tells us a unique thing that the Holy Spirit does in that moment of, uh, of work. Ephesians 1, verses 13 to 14, it says, and when, or you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the, to the praise of his glory. So the Holy Spirit has a function and a role within our conversion, and there's more elements to it as well, but just on these specifically, when you deny the gospel with unbelief, you quench the Holy Spirit from being able to indwell you, work within you, seal you, and change you. The second 
And the rest of these all refer to those of us who are in Christ. How can we quench the Spirit? The second example, we quench the Holy Spirit when we prevent him from growing us spiritually. So back in chapter one still, in verse three, this is one of the opening verses of the entire letter, and we talked about it in that first sermon as well. Paul says, you know, we remember before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Here you have this young church, they're like a year old or so. They did not know who Jesus was before they were told about Jesus. You gotta remember that. Like, you might have grown up hearing about Jesus. In, in this culture, in this generation, they didn't know. Maybe a couple of Jews were like, there's this guy named Jesus, caused a big like, ruckus a couple months ago. Maybe word got to them, but nobody knew. That's why when they shared the gospel, it was such a profound thing. So they learn about Jesus, and then they just grow. They grow like a weed, and a good weed. You know? And they're, they're moving, and they're growing, and God's doing a work in their life. They didn't know uh, who he was, but now they're being characterized by their work of faith, and their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. And this is evidence to us that the Holy Spirit wants us to grow. He wants us to 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 become deep and fruitful and mature in our faith. And so if you're looking at your life, you're like, well, you know, I got saved, you know, X amount of time. Uh, if, if you are still functioning like a spiritual toddler, that's not because you got a bad dose of the Holy Spirit when you believed. It's because of you, your, your own hindrance, your quenching and the inability to allow him to work in your life and produce something that is strong and fruitful. The Holy Spirit has a sanctifying role in your life, and we want to allow him to work. And so one of the first ways and one of the most common ways that we can quench the Spirit is preventing us from growing us spiritually. And it's a shame because, you know, all you guys, see it's, uh, it's garden season. Nobody who's planting stuff is planting all this stuff, hoping it dies. You want it to grow good and strong. You want to have a good, uh, healthy, healthy plants, good produce at the end. You want that for your stuff, you know, lettuce out in the field. How much more does God want this for you in your life? The next example, the third one here, we quench the Holy Spirit when we, uh, when we do not respect church leadership. Okay, so now we're in, we're, now we're in chapter five. I wanna work through uh, five more of these that we see in here, and there's several more, but these five stood out to me the most. So one, one is uh, not respecting church leadership. Now, full disclosure for us in the church, uh, this isn't like a common thing, a legacy. Like, this is not some big rebuke. In fact, 99% of the people in our church are uh, so so solid and healthy in this regard, okay? But verse 12, I read it a moment ago. Let me reread it. Paul says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. I draw this to our attention because any one of us, including me, can be somebody who slowly becomes disillusioned by the enemy and begins to be like a thorn in the flesh of church leadership. Any of us can become a, a splintering, uh, I don't know, pest in a way that is unhealthy and toxic within church. So let us not uh, just think, well, that's for other people. Let us be reminded, any of us, if we don't guard our heart and if we don't keep keep ourselves really entrenched in the fruit of the Spirit, um, marking our words that are a fruit of the Spirit, we will slowly become the kind of people who, who are violating this, this statement here. 
I have seen over the years, not as much in our church. There's only a handful of people in all the years. That's, it's a wonderful testament of God protecting our church so far. Uh, and people just uh, not giving in to that temptation. But there are churches, and in this, I have seen members of a church body, they can allow themselves to become a vessel of the enemy. And they think they're doing a good work, but they're actually a source of discouragement and divisive pettiness and outright disrespect toward their own shepherds. It's incredibly inappropriate and unhealthy for a church. So you can totally quench the spirit if you fall into that camp. If that is something certain in your heart and you've just been kind of good at controlling your own words, like how you externally show it, but internally, you know, you just kind of fill with a lot of bitterness or disrespect, then I, I urge you to take that to the Lord. Don't let that simmer. That is not a healthy place to be. And so you wanna, you wanna work that out. Don't let that judgmentalism take, take hold. The fourth example of quenching the spirit is also in this section. We see this in verse 15. It says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Okay, our fleshly nature loves to give payback, right? Well, we quench the Holy Spirit when we pay evil for evil. Not only uh, do we love to hurt the other person back, but we usually want it with some punitive damages. I see this in my children who are all like preschool age, and here they are like one hits the other, and the other one's like, I'm gonna hit the other one back <laughs> even harder so they don't ever like stop hitting each other. You know, like you gotta learn what this is like. Well, we experience this in relationships and in the workplace and in church and politics and court and every other sector of life. We see, we are surrounded, immersed by people who wanna take vengeance into their own hands. And it kind of, I mean, not only do we feel that, but other people are doing it too, and you kind of feel like a chump that you don't get to do that and you pray through it, and, you, and the Lord settles your heart and fills you with grace and clarity and wisdom. Again, this is not against justice, but you know, in this case, we're talking about uh, unhealthy and just the, the, the temptation of revenge. We surrender this to the Lord. And if you take it in your own hands, pay evil for evil, you quench the spirit. Listen to the words in Romans 12. Paul is describing the same concept, but he describes it more in length. To the Romans, he wrote, he wrote way more. Uh, Thessalonians, he just gave him the snapshot. So Romans 12, 19 through 21, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So this is my reminder for you using scripture, that the wrath of God is a much better uh, repay than what you could do. And your enemy doesn't wanna be in the crosshairs of God's uh, wrath or vengeance. God will take care of business and he will protect his own. The fifth example of quenching the spirit is found in verse 18. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We quench the Holy Spirit when we fail to find comfort in the Spirit in our ugly circumstances. Now, you know, 18 is referring to all circumstances. I totally get it. But notice it does not say give thanks for our circumstances, but in our circumstances. We live in a life and in a world in which junk happens. It's broken. It's sinful. We do stuff. Others do stuff. They do it to us or we are recipients of the consequences. 
our earthly bodies, they fail. And in the midst of all that stuff, and it's awful, and just pull up the news. You know, look at, look at the last month of maybe family texts or whatnot. And all those tragedies, where do we turn? Well, God promises that he will comfort us. And when we turn to other things for that comfort, we quench the spirit. We turn to him. We want to turn to him. So are our hearts thankful for God's promise of care and comfort and direction and strength and wisdom and grace in all circumstances? We can give thanks in all circumstances. Again, not for them, but we can give thanks because we can remember in all circumstances, Christ is victorious. And so even take like some of the worst scenarios. When a loved one passes away, if they are in Christ, we can remind ourselves that they are now with him and they are now um, experiencing the fullness and the beauty and the joy of eternity. And yes, our hearts grieve, and I hate that feeling of that grieving. I know, I'm, I, you know, I guess I'm not supposed to um, because we take it to the Lord and we sense his work and sometimes in the midst of grieving, you experience an intimacy with God that is profound and you would never experience it if you weren't grieving, but I still don't like that grieving feeling. But nonetheless, my heart and, and yours can declare the beautiful promises out of 1 Corinthians 15. Death no longer has a sting. Death no longer has victory because of what Christ has done. And so in all circumstances, we can give thanks. And when we stop giving thanks in those we stifle the spirit from having his work. The sixth example I have for us is in verse 20. It says, uh, I do not despise prophecies, you know, in the 21, but instead test them and hold fast to what is good. In Protestant Christianity, there tends to be this tendency to despise prophecies. Most adherents use hermeneutical gymnastics, as I call them, and anecdotes of spiritual abuse to justify their stance. However, there is more content, more instruction, both instructive and also descriptive, about the words of prophecy than even most ecclesial practices that we hold dear, such as communion and baptism and worship and fellowship all combined. So let us not despise the function of the Spirit working through others. What are we to do instead? We are to test it, test everything. And by what standard do we test it? Very simply, God's word. I mean, goodness, there's a lot of material to test it. Like if somebody you know, handed me something, I'd be like, well, let's run it through the ringer of this huge checklist. There is so much. So when they come and they say, hey, I think something's going on here. And I'm like, well, that actually violates this verse. So no, I don't think that's what's happening here. And so we walk people through that. Now, whether you look at this and you, you see this role as like the spiritual gift of prophecy or others extend it to the meaning to include preaching, and I can see both of those. I wanna encourage all Christians to embrace the last words here, verse 21, where it says, hold fast what is good. You know, there's kind of the epidemic of friendly fire within church circles, people who are brothers and sisters in Christ, passionately love the Lord, and they really do fight and value those same things. And yet, we tend to punch each other and kick each other, um, you know, and rather than fighting the enemy. And so in this case, I encourage you, hold fast what is good and don't get disillusioned by the enemy to chase after and fight over things that are unnecessary. 
the last way that we can quench the spirit is back in verse 14. I wanted to conclude with this one. It says, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. So we can quench the spirit when we are consumed with ourselves to the neglect of care for others. A major dynamic of having a vibrant faith is to care for your brothers and sisters in Christ, for the body of Christ. Here at Legacy, we tend to exhibit this through our groups, but then also just people, you know, even if you're not in the same group, you can still care for each other, bring meals to one another, uh, look out for each other. And we have all been in places where we feel faint-hearted or we are idle and we need to be, you know, stirred up or we are weak and then God uses somebody to help us in those moments. We've been recipients of that. Let us also extend that to others when we are doing well. And I want to draw your attention to the last phrase because I think, you know, that's not an accident that this says it like this. Be patient with them all. That's at the very end of verse 14. It is so easy to lose patience with those who are continually weak or idle or faint-hearted. Like, like, like self-inflictedly. You know, you're like, oh, we just talked about this a week ago. Or, oh, we're still in this situation. And they've struggled to work through that. And I want to remind you, in those moments when we extend compassionate encouragement, we exhibit a Christ-likeness that's so wonderful and pure. Think about this. He left the heavenly realms, comes on earth. He knows God's power. He knows that he can call on angels in any moment and just like totally clean house with any sort of situation in front of him. And yet, he sits with disciples who are weak in faith, asking dumb questions and way more concerned about where they're gonna sit at the table one day. And he sits with them and he's patient with them even at times when he was frustrated. And so let me remind us, if we are spiritually stronger, then God has given you that strength for the purpose to admonish and to encourage and to help those, are, those who are spiritually weaker. And let us not succumb to a sense of an entitlement or pride that we're stronger and they're weak, particularly always weak about something, because it is only by God's grace that you are in the stronger position, that that's, that besetting sin is not your sin, or that... Um, that, uh, that baggage is not your baggage that you have to continually take to the Lord. It's, it's by his grace that that's not the case. And, and there's, it's by his sovereignty that the roles aren't reversed. And you're the one always asking for help and strength because you've been faint-hearted if, if it was in your case. So these are the seven different ways you can quench the spirit using First Thessalonians, although there's, there's dozens. This would have been like a five-hour workshop that I would love to walk us through, but we're not gonna do that. What I want to focus on, because God can teach you things that even I'm not going to work through. I want us to be, rem to, to be reminded and to be uh, challenged, really, to remember that quenching the Spirit, we have allowed it to become acceptable, despite its devastating consequences in our lives. And so my prayer for you is to identify, well, you know, a spirit-led evaluation, but identifying how am I quenching the spirit in my life? What area, what behavior, what action, what mindset, what regular habit have I just become acceptable with? And yet it's grieving the spirit and literally quenching what should be fire, burning strong, 
and solid and powerful in your life. Whatever that is, I want you to take time here as we're concluding to surrender that to the Lord, to do business with the Lord. And my prayer also is that, hey bud, my prayer also is that you would allow this to like have a really good, like to be working in your heart. Because you're hearing this now, and for some of you, well, I think everybody uh, didn't know we were gonna preach on this. So <laughs> you're hearing this, and you might need some time to like process this throughout the day, throughout the week. It's Holy Week. It's a fantastic week to be asking, how am I quenching the Spirit? Like just keeping our hearts sensitive to God so that we would always be fully surrendered to Him. So whatever way that might be for you, I encourage you to honestly, uh, Keep this on the forefront of your mind. And that's how I'm gonna be praying for you as well.